I must confess that it's a very special episode of Soundtracking for me this week as we welcome first-time director Drew Pierce to the show. Drew and I have known each other for almost 20 years, during which time he's co-written Iron Man 3 and provided the story for Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. His debut feature as a director is Hotel Artemis, which is set in the near future and tells the story of a nurse who runs a hospital for criminals. Despite being new to the directing game, Drew has assembled quite an incredible cast headed up by Jodie Foster in her first major acting role for five years. Jeff Goldblum, Sophia Batella and Sterling K. Brown are amongst those providing support. He also managed to persuade the great Cliff Martinez to score the movie, who is undoubtedly one of my favourite composers. And it's with Cliff's cue, Hell in a Handbasket, that we begin, as Drew explained how Hotel Artemis came to be made. Drew Pierce. Hi Edith Bowman, how are you? <laughs> I'm very well. This is lovely. I'm so excited because I'm getting to talk to you, um, someone who I've known for a very long time about their first feature film that they've written and directed that is getting released around the world. Bravo sir. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's a weird feeling um, <laughs> to be having a, a little indie movie that last summer me and a group of people were just shooting in downtown Los Angeles and I'm still kind of emerging, blinking from the edit suite kind of into the light and suddenly everyone gets to see it. And so it's an odd feeling and it's also slightly different from some of the stuff I've done before because I'm usually a screenwriter. I'm very lucky to work on like pretty big movies or Iron Man 3 and stuff. And this one... You said like how you kind of just threw that on. Iron Man 3, everyone who didn't hear that <laughs> as he kind of ate the word. Iron Man 3? I don't really <laughs> want to sound like... It's it's very easy to go like, I mean, I can't write Iron Man 3. I, I, Which I, is a bloody great movie. I would, so. Yeah, I'm very proud of it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not hiding the fact. <laughs> um, uh, I had a really good time when we made a, a film that quite a few people liked. Yeah. Turns out a couple of people didn't like it, but... Um, uh, so, but this one, because it's my first movie, honestly, I wanted something that had my fingerprints all over it. I've worked inside the studio system, and I really love it. But, you know, the more money that's being spent on a project, the more people are going to have an opinion. Yeah, um, and control. And, yeah, and that's not unreasonable. In any job in the world, if somebody put a suitcase on the table with $200 million in it and <laughs> slid it across at you, you'd be the fool if you thought they didn't want something in return. But with this movie, I wanted something for good or for bad that came totally from me, both as a writer and a director. And so I kept it small, and that has massive challenges that come mm. with it, you know. We shot the movie in 33 days, and it's a super ambitious movie for wow. a first film, and we were just running and gunning the whole time. But it also means that the movie that came out at the end is definitely more personal it's definitely a bit more eccentric than maybe would have happened in the the, the studio system yeah it, it's slightly inspired by the movies i loved as a teenager which were well there's this thing where nowadays everything gets categorized right but when i was a teenager it was a video shop and honestly 
the first Terminator movie would be sitting next to Robocop, and I didn't know that one of those things cost ten times less than the other one. Repo Man would be sitting next to Diva, would be sitting next to Star Wars. And you would rent those films. Yeah. I remember going round to my older cousin's house one weekend and us having a film night, and us watching, I think it was Night of the Living Dead, followed by... Oh, what was it called? Street Dance 2, Electric Boogaloo. Yes, I, rem- <laughs> I remember it very well. At the most random kind of, do you know what I mean? Well, and there was also this thing where on BBC Two in particular, they would play really random, obscure movies at midnight. I assume because, like, they bought them super cheap. Yeah. You know, they often complimented Alex Cox's amazing TV show, which I think was called Videodrome. Mm-hmm. And so you would just, you would see a movie and you would set your VHS recorder for it. And because you didn't have the internet, because you didn't have cable, uh, you didn't have as many pieces of pop culture to sink your teeth into. So you would end up watching, I literally recorded Repo Man off of off of the TV. And I maybe watched it 20 times in, in two months. Yeah. So that stuff, I think, imprints on your DNA. And hopefully that still happens, but in a really singular way. But what what's interesting about those movies, even the bigger ones like Robocop, compared with some of the genre movies today is that the process of making them and maybe the taste of the audience as well means that a lot of the kind of bumpy parts of the movies get filed off Um, you know and that makes for a a, a kind of smoother ride a lot of the time but those idiosyncrasies are sometimes the things I think that stayed with me the most Mm -hmm. out of those movies unanswered questions where we're not having to explain everything in the universe that we're maybe hinting at a bigger universe through a smaller story yeah so all of that stuff was what went in the pot for hotel artemis so i wanted to keep a certain sense of the handmade quality to it you say you know kind of this small film but you look at everything from your sound designer harry cohen who's tarantino's sound designer absolutely your cinematographer Chung Hun Chung, is that yes, how you say it? that's right. Who, you know, old boy and, and the handmaiden, amazing. Yeah. And, and Cliff Martinez, your composer. Yes. That's it, an impressive team. Well, I got, I got very lucky. People really liked the script and they responded to it. And I also shot the movie in LA and no movies shoot in LA anymore. <laughs> they just don't shoot in LA. It's because there's no tax credit there or there's a, there is a tax credit, but it's not as substantial as in Vancouver or London or, or Romania. A- Atlanta. <laughs> um, Atlanta is the new Romania. Um, but, uh, I want a postcard with that on it. <laughs> that's a t-shirt. Um, but what's great about shooting in LA, I mean, I probably lost like maybe a million dollars off screen, which for a $15 million movie is a huge amount by not chasing one of those tax credits. But first of all, it's set in LA. It's it's about LA. It's mm. steeped in Los Angeles crime lineage. And so it felt really important to me to shoot it there. Yeah. Also, there's nothing looks like LA light. Even at night, the light pollution of LA is very specific. And, and I just wanted that authenticity. But what comes with that is that... There are a whole ton of incredibly high-end heads of department and people behind the camera who, for one reason or another, really don't want to go to Atlanta or Vancouver that summer. Maybe they've got a family. Maybe they just spent two years in Australia doing a movie and they'd actually like to hang out in their own house. And so none of them got paid their rate, but all of them are just way above the game, essentially, Mm. of a first-time director shooting a $15 million movie. And... That is an incredible honor. It's also, it just like, it feeds into everything. It fed into the cast as well. It's an ensemble of nine people and we have nine movie stars in the movie. And some of those 
people, because it was such a short schedule, because we were jamming so hard, some of those people were only in for three days, and those three days might be over three different weeks. If we'd been in London, yeah. they would never have flown in. We wouldn't have been able to afford to put them up for three weeks, by the way. They would have been in, like, like a Jeff like, Goldblum, like I mean, student housing. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, like, all of them are... Imagine them all sharing an Airbnb. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to be fair, I feel like what Jeff would do is he would, like, go online and say, who you know... Who wants to put me who, up? Who wants to put me up? And he would have a fabulous three-week adventure. But instead... He got to sleep in it. He was one of the people. He was only in for three days, you know. And so in, he gets to sleep in his own bed and then mm. just potter in. And it means he can fit the movie around his his hectic jazz schedule. <laughs> well, um, music is a big part of this film on so many levels. It's in the narrative, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of love the way that the nurse Jodie Foster's character, it's her saving grace, really, you know, in terms of her little earphones that she, she kind of switches on and off at various times and stuff. When you were writing the script and when you you had the idea. Did you separate the different jobs that music had within the film? So be it score, be it needle drops contemporary and be it within the narrative? Yeah, 100%. I mean, music actually is right there at the beginning of my process, always. When I have an idea, and this one kind of started around 2012, I'd scribbled down bad guy hospital or something. But what I do when I get an idea that I think maybe has legs is I start a new little notebook for it, and that is where all the ideas go for a couple of years. I start a Dropbox folder, and every image I find over that time that feels relevant to the idea goes in there, and I start a playlist. And that playlist stacks up over a couple of years. And, you know, what's funny is the the first trailer for Artemis has Thank God for the Sinners on it, and that was on the original playlist. Nurse's character herself is, is pretty much based on an obscure song. Neil Young? No, oh. actually, not the Neil Young one. Okay. Um, that, though, you know, as you say, the nurse has a tragedy in her background and she very much uses music as a way of blocking that out. I think there's also this thing of, I think you have kind of like a power era of the time that you felt most comfortable in and people revert back to wearing those clothes I think sometimes and they definitely revert back to that music as a comfort and as, as something to hide in and yeah. this movie's all about kind of people trapped both physically but emotionally and I really liked the idea that she essentially drowned out the sorrow and kept it away from her by using music but the actual song that she is kind of based on Jodie's character is there was a singer-songwriter, an obscure singer-songwriter in the late 60s and early 70s called Elise Weinberg. She was Canadian. She moved down to L.A. in 69, uh, recorded an amazing folk rock album just called Elise. It came out and it sold maybe 300 copies. And then she recorded a second album with Neil Young on it. Um, he famously, well, infamously plays guitar 
uh, I think under a pseudonym, but the album was never even, the second album was never even released. It got, it got released a couple of years ago by the Numero group who do an amazing line in, in reissues. And then she moved back to Canada. And she's still now a bit more active musically, but her story felt like a classic L.A. story and a sadness. There's a sadness that runs through L.A. fiction, this idea of the gilded cage, <laughs> the idea of, um, you know, it's there in Hotel California. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. And there's even like a specific song on her first album called Band of Thieves. And the lyrics start with the phrase, woke up with a band of thieves making their way across town, which is the exact way that Hotel Artemis begins. And the hook of the song is, what about the good life I've been expecting for so long? And it's, a, it's a, just a total heartbreaker. was like one of the main stimuli for creating the nurse character. It's unusual to make a sci-fi crime movie and put a 65-year-old woman in them as the lead of it. And it's another one of the reasons that I didn't make it as a studio <laughs> movie, because I think I would have been escorted out of the building. <laughs> um, but Can I just say that it, it's incredible and she's incredible as well. This, the role in her performance is just brilliant. Yeah, I mean, turns out, spoiler alert, Jodie Foster pretty good actor right. um, uh, but it was interesting because like it's a very different thing for her other than doing Elysium she hasn't really acted for 10 years certainly not in a movie that she didn't direct yeah she was working with a first-time director which she's seldom done in the 52 years that she's been an actor uh, she's working on a little movie which she hadn't done for a long time she was coming back into the game playing a character 10 years older than she is but playing a very different persona to the kind of stuff that we've become familiar with Jodie and like yeah. the kind of latter part of her career, the kind of flinty woman on a mission. I might be thinking too much about or looking too much into the, the score side of things, which I've been listening to nonstop. Thank you for sending it to me, no, by the way. No, my pleasure. Um, and there's the second track in on, on the score, Make a Call. Yeah. It's got this little harpsichord kind of little yes. melody thing that kind of goes through it. Do you know what it made me think of? What? Bugsy Malone. Ah, well, um... You know that ding, 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 ding. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I love it. it. 
I think it's a dulcimer. Um, I can't be, I can't you. remember the exact <laughs> name of it because Cliff Martinez, who who composed the score, has this amazing lockup full of the most obscure instruments you in the world. You must have been in heaven. I did enjoy it. Um, and he would send me photos. He's like, this, on, this is going on the truck today. And I'm like, oh, wow, a glass xylophone. That's a real thing. Um, Shut no, up. No, that's a real thing. It's on the middle all over the movie. And so... Uh, it's just like a shot, like, well, I'll have that, 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 and that on the film, please. And it's interesting <laughs> about that riff, because one of the things that you try and do with a, with a score is, particularly when you've got nine characters in 90 minutes, because it's a tight pop song of a music <laughs> movie. It's not it's not a prog album. Um, uh, so one of the things you, you have to try and do is, is find a theme for each character. It's certainly really helpful in a movie like mine, where 70... 80% of it is set in the same place, as well as physically differentiating the rooms from each other um, and the characters from each other, you want to you want to either announce their presence as a specific thing or you want to underline a moment that kind of gives it to them. Mm. And sometimes actually play with the power of who's owning the scene by leaning yeah. into their theme. And the, the dulcimer that you hear is kind of Waikiki's theme. And I wanted him to have just a touch of like of Morricone mm -hmm. to him because for me, Morricone scores are the ones that suggest a broken hero the very best way, and that's what Sterling K. Brown's character Waikiki really is. But they also have an undeniable cool factor as well. And, you know, and Sterling needs very little help in being cool. But oh. but I just, I almost like, there's a push-in that reveals him. Um, and I just wanted to give him like a bang-on theme for that, for that role. Yeah. And then, you know, and then it, it's a, that's an interesting motif because you then track it through the movie and it becomes sadder as a motif because of the stuff that his character yeah. goes through. And then right at the end, it underscores his final um, uh, conversation with Jodie's character, the nurse. And then, you know, what Cliff would do is you would slightly modulate the, the, the tune um, so that it'll end on a slightly more hopeful version of what you heard at the beginning. And that stuff 
people don't know they notice it, but it absolutely, that's the joy of score, is it's so about emotional connection, not manipulation even, but but connection with a character and their journey. And, mm. and I think that's, you know, when you're, when you're approaching that part of score, I, I think that's what's really important. Cliff's interesting on that as well because people think of him as the synthy keyboard guy. The drive guy. Who did drive, yeah. <laughs> and like he, you know, it's one of the most frustrating things for him, I, I think. Because also most people just come to him, f like ask him for a drive. Another one of them. Yeah. <laughs> and actually I think it was his Solaris soundtrack that I um, gravitated to him yeah. because of. Um, which is a string soundtrack, which is rare for Cliff. Um, but it's so emotional. interesting thing about how Cliff works is he there's nothing about what he does that is him asking what is cool everything he does is about playing the emotion of the character mm. on screen or playing against the emotion of the character on screen because you're quite different to I would say pretty much every other director we've had on so far in that you write music you can write music you have written music you're mm -hmm. a musician as well as a writer and a director and stuff does that make it easier when you're trying to communicate about what you want from a composer's score, or is he kind of like, I got this? No, actually, it was, in, and I can only speak to the relationship with Cliff. Maybe it would yeah. have been different with a di with a different composer, yeah. but it meant it, again we were having to jam it so fast. You know, we only had him for three weeks. Um, wow, Cliff's fast man. I mean, like, Cliff did the drive score in in like a week. No way. Yeah, yeah, I think it was it was really tight. By the way, um, will you ask him if he'll come on? Of course I'll ask him if he'll come on. <laughs> he lives in an eerie up in Topanga I'll, I'll Canyon. I'll my flight tomorrow. He has the most amazing studio, which is which he's built there, which is all kind of pine. And then it just has this giant picture window that looks straight down Topanga Canyon to the wow. ocean. Which again was really great because that fed into the vibe of of the movie, yeah. you know, and um, he knows LA. He he, knows, he really yeah. does, and and he really knows how to soundtrack LA. I mean, as as Drive uh, shows. 
I found it easy to work with him because of my musical background, but more importantly, I found it easier to be able to express what wasn't working. So it's less about a specific suggestion of a difference, but it does allow me to say, I think this could be a, m a minor key piece. It's usually about like stripping back music as well, yeah. because it's about letting everything breathe. And again, Cliff's absolutely brilliant with that. But there's also, you know, I know my way around Pro Tools and stuff, so that's actually really helpful when you get to the, the sound mix because you can start isolating tracks and seeing what happens if you take one of them out. You know, if there's a percussion hit that comes at the wrong time because it's on a piece of dialogue, then you can isolate that. I was always very respectful. I would always ask Cliff if we could make those changes. And frankly, he's often, always, I don't think there was ever a time when he was like, no, that doesn't work because he's in service to the film. One of the things that Cliff did in working with Wiley Stateman, uh, the sound designer, is um, he wanted to make the music of Artemis work very much in conjunction with the sound design. And there are pieces, there are moments in the movie where you can't tell whether something is the beat of the score or yeah. the dinging of an elevator. And we really wanted to integrate that, partly because we shot on a set, partly because we're a small movie that needs to be portraying a much bigger world outside. And so the sound design was so incredibly important and it couldn't fight the score. They had to live with each other. And you know, what's handy is Wiley, who's Tarantino's sound designer and, and an absolute genius, lives the next house along in Topanga Canyon. I mean, there's a giant chasm between them. I was going to say, you've got like a rope bridge between By the way, both of them have the scariest houses in the world to drive to. Oh. Um, I have a fear of heights, which, which I had completely forgotten about in Hotel Artemis until I went for the first scout yeah. and realised that I'd written a movie set partly on the rooftops of Los Angeles and more importantly, had fought for like six months to shoot them on real rooftops rather than green screen things. And I literally came out onto a roof and like swayed for a moment and, uh, and realized what a terrible mistake I'd made. And then when it came to post-production, one would think that a person who's a bit scared of heights would then be safe. But no, because like the road to Cliff's house is the most dangerous, terrifying road I've ever been on. I interviewed The Killers not that long ago and they did their latest album up there with Jackknife Lee. Right. And same thing, Brandon hated it so much that he just ended up staying there and got a camp bed out and just stayed there rather than go up and down. Ronnie, the drummer, <laughs> <laughs> 
his dog was sick in the car oh, because God. of the oh, white derail. Oh my God, that is <laughs> right. I mean, that's the thing, and um, like, but it's, it is interesting because it does make you stay in the in the dub <laughs> like anywhere. as long as possible. <laughs> and I won't lie, there were some days where I got like my producer to drive me up there because I was like, I'm too emotionally frail to drive. <laughs> The, the trail today, um, but it is. It, it's uh, there's actually there's um, there's something fascinating because the Topanga canyons and hills are a place where tons of musicians and music producers have their studios. Ruben's there in the house that the band used um, to record their albums in. Of course he is. <laughs> um, and and it, there's something about the wide open space of the canyon, the fact that it's away from all noise. Um, except for the sound of coyotes eating <laughs> eating people's dogs, um, that uh, it's a that's a big thing that happens in LA. Uh, little air dogs and big coyotes is a bad mix. Um, so uh, yeah, so that that was all up there, and it was actually it was to connect those two such amazing people with Cliff and and Wiley, uh, who had always wanted to work together as well because they're neighbours and never had, and that came about not because I knew that fact, just because. Wiley saw a rough cut of the movie and just loved the idea of being able to build the universe. Yeah. And Cliff did the same thing. Why was Cliff the right man for the job? Why did you choose him, decide on him? Well, originally, we tempt the movie with a very different kind of score to what Cliff did in the end. Because Chung Hoon Chung shot the movie, and there's a lot of Korean movie influence in the film. I love the kind of busted sumptuousness of like Wong Kar Wai and of, of Director Park. And it was funny because I'd met tons of cinematographers, and I got really lucky because I got to meet loads of great young ones and loads of great older ones and I suddenly realized halfway through this meeting process that maybe a third of the shots that I was using as examples were actually shot by the cinematographer Chung Hoon Chung and I thought well maybe it would make sense if I actually talked to him as well and he is brilliant the funniest man you'll ever meet English is not his first language but as he says he speaks the language of cinema and I found it very very easy to to work with him. So there's a kind of sumptuousness to the pictures mm. in the movie. And originally, I wanted to reflect that in the score. So we actually used a lot of temp from Asian cinema. Uh, we used some kind of classic Hollywood, uh, like golden era yeah. um, strings, like those kind of high, lush Disney strings. And two things became apparent, like during the course of making, uh, of editing the film. One, we would not have the money to do a big orchestra. Or if we did, it might be one of the kind of Eastern European orchestras where you don't get to really go and control the quality. You send them the, the, the sheets and um, they send you back your score. It can be a very inexact part of the process. Yeah. And I'm fairly exacting. <laughs> um, and uh, so that became apparent. And it also became apparent that one thing that the score needed to do was build tension and the lush more orchestral cinematic sounds weren't helping that at all if anything they were slowing the movie down yeah um and so 
I'd always said, oh, you know, it's a bit of a cliche making an LA movie. And, and also, like, I mean, literally the way I used to describe the film is like a John Carpenter movie directed by Wong Kar Wai before I shot it. And so I was like, well, doing an electronic score, primarily electronic score, is, it feels, it feels a bit of a cliche. It feels like it's been done in LA crime movies. But we ended up on some ways doing it for the exact same reasons that Carpenter did, which is he always wanted massive sound, but he couldn't afford an orchestra. And so keyboards were the way that he, I mean, he physically, because he wrote and played it, that's how he filled out his, his early movies. And to a degree, we were doing the same thing. Can we talk about some of the other um, needle drops as they're kind of referred to? There's a beautiful Buffy St. Marie cover right. in there, Helpless. Yeah. That's beautiful. It's an amazing song. We got very lucky to be able to use it. Again, you know, we had, we had so little music clearance budget. And one of the things I wanted was LA 70s Canyon uh, needle drop tracks because they are the, the nurse's power era and they are her place of comfort. And a lot of those songs and a lot of those artists are incredibly successful. So I got to use an Elise Weinberg track and we actually, I really wanted to make sure we paid her well because of her yeah. backstory. And so- Did you ask her directly then? I, I, I sent her a, a letter. I, I mean like, usually you just hear back from the manager after you send a letter and yeah. you don't necessarily know if it ever like got to the artist. a physical letter. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I love that. And so her track City of the Angels is the walk away song in the movie, which was really important to me. And that's actually off of the album that never got released. But now you can find it. It's, like, it's, it's called Grease Paint Smile. And City of the Angels is probably the, the key track other than Houses, which is the one that has like a scorching Neil Young solo on it. That's my listening for the rest of the day. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> so good. When I first came to the City of the Angels When I was in my prime How did you learn about her just out of interest? 
I honestly think with her, I picked up her first album is one of those kind of crate digger classics that, and so I saw it in a specialist vinyl shop, and I definitely got told that you know it's a it's a lost 1969 Ladies of the Canyon um, uh, biggie, and got it and just listened to it over and over again. It's a pretty weird album, the first one. It's really ragged. Mm. Um, and I suspect that's partly why it didn't crack, uh, it, it didn't break through in, in the way that some of the others did because Californian rock was becoming smoother. You know, it was, yeah, it was yeah. transitioning in 69, 70, it was kind of transitioning to, I guess, what people would now call yacht rock. But, um, but it's kind of was the, it was graduating from the canyons to Malibu. Yeah. Basically, and that's literally the difference between where the musicians were recording as well. You know, and by the time you hit Fleetwood Mac and the Eagles, they're all out by the beach, you know, riding limos to, to <laughs> yeah. the studio. And in Fleetwood Mac's case, um, hiring a baby elephant to uh, to pad across the studio floor from LA Zoo to record its uh, feet as a drum track. There was the excess levels. No, it's a real thing. Wow. I mean, it may be a real apocryphal thing, but it, it, it's, a, it's a real thing. So, that, that it, you know, LA music got to a place of, of very deep excess. <laughs> so there's one track in the middle of the movie that underscores the nurse's most painful moment and yeah. is also the moment where her character kind of breaks and we see the tragedy of her backstory. And the first track that ever went in for it was actually one of the tracks that was on the letter that I sent out to everyone at the beginning of the process. It was uh, Neil Young's Helpless by Buffy St. Marie. expensive Neil Young songs were to clear. Partly because I think he basically, he essentially makes them prohibitive to use because he's very cinema literate. Mm -hmm. And I think he's always said that he doesn't necessarily want his songs associated with an image because he wants people to bring their own stuff to the song. So they cost the earth, which is absolutely his prerogative. But we did not have the earth. And so I wrote him a letter saying, I want to use the Buffy St. Marie version. All of the nurses' songs, because they're internal to her, I wanted female singers for it's all beautiful. of them because they, they kind of speak yeah. to the nurse. And basically I explained Buffy's songs have very seldom been on uh, movies in the last 50 years, and she's still out there gigging. Wow. She's, a, she's a powerhouse. I think the reason he let us have it for an unbelievably reasonable amount of money was to help Buffy. 
because he was friends with her back in the 70s. And so I really love that that was the driving reason behind how we ended up being able to use the song in the movie. And then you've got, you've done, you've obviously got a relationship with Father John Misty because you've shot videos for him and stuff like that. That's right. Now he is, I mean, he's all over this film. He, he is, he's in he's it. in it. I don't tell people where. I think it's nice for them to try and work out where okay. he is. Because you're surprised that people don't realise it's I him. can't believe people don't recognise him. I mean, he's, oh, that's a spoiler. But, um, <laughs> like, he's a little hidden at first. Um... But the reason I put him in is I'd made music videos with him, and I think Josh, which is the real name of Father John Misty, <laughs> though it's, it's sometimes you just call him Misty by mistake. But um, no, FGM? Uh, never, no. I've never done that. Okay. Uh, seems unfriendly, <laughs> overly formal. Um, but he, I used to, again back to those movies I loved when I was a teenager. I loved when you'd be watching a film and someone in a band would be in a small role. I mean, it was usually a member of The Clash in, like, eight out of ten of them. Yeah. But, like, I loved, you know, when Tom Waits is in Jim Jarmusch. Mm -hmm. um, less so when it's Mick Jagger as the bad guy in Free Jack. But um, don't get me wrong, I think you want to give your musician actors perhaps a, a, a smaller ring-fenced playpen to work in. Um, <laughs> like, I don't think you should necessarily ask too much of them. Uh, but they also, they carry with them a, a really enigmatic quality. They've got a power. They've got an element X to them. That, mm -hmm. um, and so that's why I wanted to put him in the movie. And because of that, we were chatting and he, you know, wrote and recorded essentially the theme tune to the film, the secret final track that's on the movie. It's entirely thematically based on him knowing the script. It's called Gilded Cage. And, um, it's really it's, timeless as well, Truck. Oh, yeah. And he, um, I, you know, and it's it's terrible because it couldn't be the final, final track, the walkaway track at the end, because that one had to be really connected to the nurse and it had to be Elise. So it's the second track on, uh, on the credits. And I fought internally with that for so long because I just really wanted to showcase it. So it's in there, it's hidden. I adore the song and I hope uh, I hope people get to hear it. Oh, I sold my fortune Give up my claim I traded sunshine For the pouring rain I followed wise men Turn the other way Someday I'll up and fly This guilty cage Well, they say only a fool Would turn the other way Someday I'll up and fly This guilty cage How's his acting? Josh, I hadn't realised quite how little acting Father John Misty had done before the film, and because it was none. 
Well, it's videos. It's you know, it's it's well, yeah. short films almost. Ab- really. Absolutely, and and again, he has such a presence that he seems like an actor. <laughs> but it turns out he didn't know many of the technical aspects. So we're shooting in a bank vault, and we do our first couple of takes, and it becomes obvious we're not on him but that we can hear him talking in the background through the whole time. Because Josh had never been on a film set, he didn't realize that everyone else mouthed silently (laughs) while the main actors talk, and he'd been doing his thing. There's also this great bit, he kind of comes out of, there's an explosion and he comes out of it, and on the first take he did it, you know, he's working with uh, Sterling K. Brown, an amazing award-winning actor, and Brian Tyree Henry, who's Paperboy in Atlanta. Yeah. And he comes through this explosion and, you know, we're using like a, a massive dust cannon and he stumbles out and he just starts coughing, you know, because he's inhaled a ton of dust. Uh, and he got to the end of the take and he, tell, he told me that Sterling turned to him and went like, that was great, man. That was really good. You really sold it. And Misty was like, oh, OK. And so for every other take, he had to like die coughing the entire way through it. Completely ruined his vocal. Absolutely, I was really worried. <laughs> um, we run out of time, but can we have a part two? We don't need another film to do part two, to be <laughs> honest. But, but um, thank you so much for your time. It's so appreciated. And yeah, go go and see Hotel Artemis. It is. It's so unique and brilliant that you feel really connected to it because there are references that you don't realise that you recognise. It's kind of what I've been saying to people. But yeah, it's brilliant. Congratulations. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. From Hotel Artemis, that's California Dreaming by the Mamas and Papas, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Drew Pierce. My huge thanks to Drew for taking the time to talk to us. Hotel Artemis is on general release around the world now, with Cliff's fantastic score available via our good friends at Lakeshore Records. If you'd like to listen to all the music featured on this episode in its entirety, then you can find a playlist for this episode, as you can for every soundtrack episode, on Spotify. Now, we will try and get Cliff on soon, but in the meantime, you'll find loads of episodes featuring composers via edithbowman.com or on iTunes, where you can also subscribe to the podcast. Please do if you get a second. And of course, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. Next up is an award-winning writer for stage and screen, the formidable Abby Morgan. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. (laughs) 